Love Talk Radio. Women have the power to transform this world. We can end crime and violence if we all agree to do one thing. Share. Let's share our wisdom, share our time, share our talents, share our finances, but most of all, let's share our love. This is The Female Solution. Join me, Naima Latif, every morning, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, as we bring you stimulating discussions about the issues affecting our lives. If you're listening online at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the-female-solution, press the blue button that says follow and get our daily topics every morning directly to your email and your smartphone. Hi, I'm Naima Latif, executive producer of the Female Solution Radio Show. We invite you to call in 515-605-9325 and participate in this daily think tank as we examine the challenges we face and develop solutions that restore peace and harmony. We are global transformers, changing the world from the way it is to the way it should be. We are one. Wherever we live on this earth, we are one human family. On behalf of our team of radio hosts, I'd like to extend a greeting to all the members of our family, whenever and wherever you may be listening around the world. To our family in China, Ni Hao. In India, Namaste. In Japan, Konnichiwa. In Korea, Annyeong Haseyo. In Russia, Zdrastutsya. In Germany, Guten Tag. In Poland, Dzień Dobry. In France, Bonjour. In Spain, Hola. In Italy, Ciao. In Egypt, Athen Wasalan. In Ghana, Akwaba. In Nigeria, Peleo. In South Africa, Saobona. In Senegal, Nangadef. In Kenya, Jambo. In Israel, Shalom. In Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia, Assalamu Alaikum. Greetings, and may peace be upon you all. Welcome to this Saturday edition of the Female Solution Global Radio TV Show. I'm Naima Latif, sitting in for our international host, Jana, joining us live from London. Well, today, we're sending her love and light as she works on rest, relaxation, and healing. And we're bringing you, once again, live from Chicago the African Festival of the Arts, and we're bringing you some international authors that have wisdom to share. We want you to call in 515-605-9325 and press 1 when you are ready to speak. We've got people that are looking for ways to affect the global community. And here on the on-air daily news network, where we feature the Female Solution Global Radio TV show, we're connecting to peacekeepers around the world. And we are so excited 
that we've got some outstanding authors. Later on our show, we'll be joined by Bishop Leonard M.P. Kewa, internationally renowned author from Uganda, whose books and works have brought healing energy and a spirit of peace. And we're excited because his new book, scheduled to launch September 16th, will really bring people together in a spirit of peace, above denominations, above differences, above racial differences, above cultural differences. And we are excited that he's going to be here at the African Festival of the Arts later this afternoon to meet the audience and bring a taste of Uganda. We've got many here who are from across the water, across the world, and across the street who are excited to mingle and to bring some insight. So we have authors who are bringing wisdom, and it's so exciting exciting here at the African Festival of the Arts because you can experience what the African marketplace is like, and you can experience what it's like to be in that environment where people have their wares on display and you can actually get a taste of Africa, especially with the clothing, the artifacts, the artwork, the books, the memorabilia, the jewelry, and so many things that bring a taste of home to those of African descent and bring a wonderful culture to America. There is a large African population here in America, some who (laughs) came centuries ago, but many who are recent immigrants. And we are excited to be a part of that process, especially because there are so many who are influencing the culture of America. And it's an exciting thing for us to see how America is enjoying a taste of Africa So you can come here to the African Festival of the Arts. Here at 51st and Cottage Grove, that's the entrance. And you can experience the wonderful opportunity to get to meet people from across the globe. And you can also get an opportunity to bring some some of Africa to your home, some of the artifacts here and also some of those who are visiting here specifically for the African Festival of the Arts. We want to make sure that 
we appreciate the various cultures. So, of course, behind me is the underground books stall. And if you're at the African Festival, on 50, it's the bookstore, the book stall is right near 51st and St. Lawrence. So you can find it with the many booths here. And also his bookstore is at 80, on 87th Street, east of Stony Island. Uh, you'll see the sign right there, Underground Books. And the proprietor, Yoel, is one who has a great love of books. He's got books from all across the world. And he can probably tell you a little bit about every single book in that story. He's very well read. So we're looking forward to seeing some of the authors that are featured here at the African Festival of the Arts, authors that are sharing a great deal of their wisdom, especially because they've taken the time to write a book. And writing a book is no small feat. It takes, it takes a bit of discipline, concentration, and determination to tell your story, especially because Every story is different. And so we're excited to be able to bring you some wonderful stories here at the African Festival of the Arts. And we want you to call in 515-605-9325 and press 1 when you're ready to speak. If you want to speak to some of these authors and ask them a bit about the stories that they're sharing with us. And, of course, and uh, right after the break, we'll be joined by Ugandan author Leonard M. P. Keiwa, who will tell us about his upcoming book and his attempt, his desire to bring people closer to God, and understanding that when they are closer to God, they are closer to each other. We're so grateful that he's bringing his healing work from Uganda to the United States and all across the world. And we invite you to join us as we continue this celebration of diversity in African culture. Next week, First Eye Concepts presents the 2023 Yoruba Cultural Festival. And this cultural exchange festival First will be at the uh, African International House, and we're excited to be able to bring you coverage from there. And, of course, the grand finale will be at Malcolm X College Main Auditorium. That's at 1900 West Jackson Boulevard. And this is a celebration of the very rich Yoruba culture, but most importantly, it's an acknowledgement of those leaders who are bringing peace to our world through the respect of other cultures. Our own Honorable Mayor Brandon Johnson will be there, along with His Royal Majesty, King Adidapo Adermi, and His Royal Majesty Oba Kabiru Alani Adi 
larger Pulawole and Babiata, and His Royal Majesty Oba, Dr. Festus Adekunle Adeyemi, and our own dear Congressman Danny K. Davis, representing the 7th Congressional District here in Illinois. These powerhouse leaders are demonstrating the importance of cooperation, unity, and reaching out to the community to make a difference. Organized by the president and CEO of First Eye Concept, Ambassador Wole Akane Duroladipo, this is a chance to honor those among us who have, in fact, made a difference and are continuing to reach across the world to our brothers and sisters to make their presence known. Special honoree is Chief Dr. Quentin Samba Taylor, the Alexander, whose work in Liberia has been phenomenal in bringing clothing to the people, and supporting schools there and having a school named in his honor and continuing to raise consciousness about the Liberian people and to make a difference in the lives of children. He'll be a special honoree. He is the president and CEO of We Dream in Color Foundation and is known globally for his work, and he will, of course, be a special honoree at this event. So we're excited to bring you more understanding of the roots of Africa and how these roots are having such an impact in our culture here in America. But we want you to come out to the African Festival of the Arts and experience Africa for yourself right here, 51st and Cottage Grove is the entrance. And we're so excited to bring you some of the wisdom keepers who have written books to share their knowledge. And you'll be able to meet them right at the underground books booth here at the African Festival of the Arts. And, of course, if you have not yet purchased your tickets for the African Festival of the Arts, we want you to uh, make sure that you get your tickets so that you can enjoy quite a quite a variety of experiences. And of course, African food, which is just outstanding. So we urge you to go to AIHUSA.org. And get your tickets again at AIHUSA.org to get your tickets to the
African Festival of the Arts. And they'll send you electronic tickets. Of course, you can fill that when you get to the entrance. You know, everything. We're saving trees by doing things electronically. So we definitely want to give you that opportunity to uh, be a part of this cultural celebration and to make sure that you are here with us as we introduce you to some wonderful authors, and we want you to continue your celebration of African culture with the 2023 Yoruba Cultural Exchange Festival uh, next next Friday and Saturday. September 8th and 9th, and of course, the gala night, we want you to be there at Malcolm X College, September 9th, to celebrate our dear mayor, and we want you to go to www.firstieinc.org, that's F-I-R-S-T-E-Y-E-I-N-C dot O-R-G so that you can get your tickets. And, of course, you can call 708-551-8407. That's 708-551-8407 for next week's Yoruba Cultural Festival, Chicago 2023, for cultural dance, gala awards, taste of African foods, and cultural drumming, and so much more. We know that we have quite a bit that we have shared with America in our culture, and we are grateful that America has been a place where African influence can spread. The brilliance of Africa, the spirit of Africa, the resilience of Africa is here right in America among those who have both immigrated willingly and unwillingly, but we know that the human family is one family, and we are grateful to be able to share our family with so many who are coming here and experiencing the beauty of African culture. And we're also excited to be able to introduce to many who are not familiar with those who are doing work throughout Africa. There are those who have been involved over the decades and bringing African culture to America and the world and bringing some of the resources of America to Africa. So we want to make sure we make it possible for those of you who are in and around the Chicagoland area to have that experience 
and to come on down to the African Festival of the Arts this Labor Day weekend. This weekend, we're going to four days. We started out yesterday. Started out yesterday uh, at the African Culture of the at the African. Festival of the Arts started out here with those who were kicking off this event as a way to celebrate the wonder, the beauty, the majesty of African culture continuing today and also tomorrow. Sunday and Monday, this entire weekend, we're excited to be able to share with our global family some of the wonderful uh, activities happening here and some of those who are helping to make it happen. We're Grateful for all who have been a part of organizing this event and, of course, the the African culture, uh, African Festival of the Arts is organized every year, and we had an opportunity to interview the organizers at the gala last week and you can go to onaireverywhere.com for more on that interview and we also had a chance to talk to uh, some of the honorees and we're glad that they are encouraging people to take trips to Africa. Every place in this world is just a plane ride away. And that being the case, we have a chance with many who are specializing in travel and our own dear Travel agent Deborah, who is here on the Female Solution Global Radio TV show every third Saturday, gives us some travel tips, uh, whether you're going at home or abroad, you have a chance to see the world if you simply know how to organize yourself and prepare for your travel and every third Saturday Deborah is here on the Female Solution Global Radio TV show to help us in case we have fears of going abroad and we need to know that we are a global family and we need to know that there is nothing to fear we're grateful that we have a chance to meet those who are 
from across the water and from around the world. We're grateful that we have a chance to to uh, mend the gap and to perhaps dispel some uh, misunderstandings when it comes to culture and when it comes to understanding history. We have so many who are able to be a part of the history of America and have impacted the world. So we have a chance to bridge the gap. And we've got our Monday morning mindfulness host, Zelda Speaks, who will be joining us in the second hour as we make sure that we give all of our various authors a chance to explore the possibilities as we make it possible for you to meet them and ask them questions. And we're going to give you a view of the bookstore here at the African Festival of the Arts because we want you to come on down and purchase some of the books that are available. And here at the African Festival of the Arts, as you can see, there are so many, so many who are here setting up. And we want you to take a look at some of the books that you can purchase, especially if you are a book lover. So here you are, here you have at the underground books table. We've got a special array of children's books and if you've got children you want to have some books that are especially designed to inspire them wonderful history books and here of course is the proprietor Yoel who has been one that has supplied has supplied so many with books over the years and has made a difference especially when it comes to educating the public and making sure that we know our history. And he's a very well-read man. And if you've ever come to his bookstore on 87th Street, you know that he can probably tell you something about every single book that's here. 
and he's probably read them all, the hundreds and hundreds of books. You can believe he can tell you about the authors, these books, the history. Definitely a historian who has taken his love of books and turned it into a business. And can you tell us, Yoel, again, the exact address of your bookstore? 1727 East 87th Street. The Bacchanal East Stony Island, Chicago. All right. 1727 East 87th Street. You need to come on down and get books as gifts for your children this school year because they need to know that they can enjoy reading as just a means of entertainment. And you can hear the sound of African drums in the background. And you can also see many of those who are offering some of the beautiful garments. And right here, oh, now these are some garments that you need. <laughs> and yes, yes, yes. <laughs>
things manifest in a way that will make a difference. So we're excited to bring you those who are intending to have an impact and are able to make a difference with the work that they do. And this is no simple feat. It truly is not because many, many are able to make a difference and many are able to Many are able to share their wisdom. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll bring you more from the African Festival of the Arts here in Chicago, 5100 South Cottage Grove. And it's a way for you to experience Africa. Something I'm missing. A way to experience African culture. A way to experience uh, the history. And a way to meet those who have made it their business to share. And, of course, if you are listening online and want you to join this conversation, give us a call, 515-605-9325, and press 1 when you're ready to speak. And we will gladly, uh-oh, and we will gladly, oh, here we are, take your call. And if you are able to come on down to the African Festival of the Arts will introduce you to some people that you should know, people who have already, with their work, made a magnificent difference in the world. And definitely we want to help you broaden your perspective of the world by bringing you face-to-face with African culture and bringing you face-to-face with those who have been sharing African culture and giving you a chance to understand the world we live in and its wonderful diversity and definitely giving you a chance to be a part of that diversity as you seek to uh, understand more about how we are impacting the world as we go through the process of getting to know each other and helping each other to grow. I'm Naima Latif. You've been listening to the Female Solution Global Radio TV Show. And we'll be right back after this quick message, so stay with us. We have an opportunity to transform the whole global society in the next 50 years. 50 years from now, the earth will be populated by a new generation of adults, many of whom are yet unborn. 
Our mission is to nurture them in childhood with love, guidance, and protection and to raise them in healthy, happy families. If we impart values of compassion, generosity, and respect for fellow human beings in the next generation of children, they will create a world where people can live together in peace. This is our goal. Be a part of the transformation. Get your copy of the book, The Female Solution. Go to www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. Are you constantly arguing with your spouse? Are your children misbehaving and acting out? Is someone in your family abusing drugs? Have you been the victim of domestic violence? Are you grieving over the loss of a loved one? Let us help you restore serenity to your life. At Serenity Family Social Services, we understand that good mental health is a result of emotional well-being. Our goal is to assist you and your family in removing emotional distress and restoring harmony and balance to your lives. We offer individual, couples, and family counseling. I'm Howard Williams, CEO of Serenity Family Social Services. Call us today at 312-315-4820. That's 312-315-4820. And we are back. You're listening to and watching the Female Solution Global Radio TV show. I'm Naima Latif, and we're joined now with our Monday Morning Mindfulness host, Zelda. Thank you so much for joining us. We're here at the African Festival of the Arts about to talk to some exciting authors, and we're so pleased you're with us. And, of course, you might get an opportunity to meet even more exciting people this coming Monday. We'll be here at the African Festival of the Arts all weekend, and definitely, uh, you 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 came here and uh, you saw you saw some things. You, I think she's got on some of her jewelry, y'all, that she got just yesterday. Tell us about the jewelry that you found yesterday. Uh oh. Can you hear us? Oh, are we frozen? I think I think she might be frozen. Uh oh. Wait a minute. Yeah, I think we might have might have a frozen screen here. Well, of course, what you're seeing, if you're watching us on the Female Solution uh, on Facebook or YouTube, you can see that she's got some wonderful jewelry on, and she got it right here at the African Festival of the Arts, and it is a beautiful necklace, definitely a necklace that is uh, straight from the continent. Yeah, I believe her screen is frozen. But we are excited because this just shows some of the wonderful artifacts that are available here. And it's exciting to be a part of this uh, this celebration especially because we know that there is so much that Africa has to offer the world. And those who are uh, empathetic and sympathetic 
to the reality that we must come together as a global family and we must uh, respect each other. So we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back and we're going to introduce you to an exciting author that is here to give us some insight and uh, some inspiration. And, of course, if you are listening online and want to join this conversation, give us a call, 515-605-9325, and press 1 if you're ready to speak. And we will certainly open your mic and get your thoughts. And I'm Naima Lateef. And in just one moment, we're going to introduce you to Helen Schiller, longtime freedom fighter. We'll be right back after this quick break, so stay with us. Do you want to live in a world without war? Join our global peace movement. Heavenly Culture World Peace Restoration of Light transcends culture, religion, ideology, and other boundaries to achieve peaceful harmony in the global society. HWPL is committed to bringing world peace and cessation of war through peaceful dialogue between religious groups. I am Director Shin Suk Kim of the HWPL Chicago branch of North America. Join us for our next gathering. Call 773-580-1501 and be a part of the movement for world peace. Email us at chicagohwpl at gmail.com. Just tell us a bit about your book and what inspired you. <laughs> 
housing, education, um, health care, police misconduct, all of these things were related and directly informed by my experience in the Intercommunal Survival Committee working under the direction of the Black Panther Party, led by the program and platform, informed by the program and platform of the Black Panther Party and the survival programs we created and participated in, including the ones for political action. Um, because what we realized was that political action, um, legal action, and community participation in action um, organizing were the three pillars for really having an impact in changing the world, especially when we realized the revolution we expected to be happening in the early 70s was really truly a prolonged, a retracted struggle, and we had to be in it for the long haul, making the notion of survival program, survival pending revolution, so very so very clear and so very needed and so very important. Uh, at any rate, when I got to the end of the book, I realized that over and over and over again, every kind of, almost everything that I had been involved in had really been informed, my own actions, by that platform and program. So we actually ended the book with it. Um, but So that's the book. Um, there's lots of stories. I tried to write it as stories uh, because um, I wanted it to read almost like a fiction book to make it easy to read. But for those of us who have prefer to hear and listen rather than read uh, nonfiction or any books, actually. Uh, we did do, I did record an audiobook earlier this summer, and it's now also available where every audiobook is sold. So it's in both forms. And um, you want to talk? All right. Have a conversation. <laughs> well, we're excited because, you know, I remember that, that history with, Mayor Harold Washington and how critical it was to form that coalition of progressive people on the other sides of town and to really make a difference. And it was exciting to watch, and I know there were, there were a lot of intense struggles. Well, one of the things that you observed is, is getting into the political arena, uh, coming from an activist into politics, what were some of the challenges that you experience. So first of all, um, governing and demanding change in government are two entirely different things to do. (laughs) Um, And difficult thing I think is to be able to really remember who you are, not be changed by a changed environment, but find the way in which to really impact the changes you want. My experience is that um, change, the, we, the status quo or change to the status quo is really kind of like gravity and inertia. We get into an orbit, and it's tr- hard to get out of it. That orbit is kind of the status quo, the way things are. If you want to make a change, the only way to do that is really through friction, just like if you have a circle in orbit, the only way that orbit changes if it's, if it's, if it's addressed with friction in order to be able to change the direction. It's the same thing in life with almost anything. So uh, what was really clear from the very beginning was that I was challenging the way things were. I told Harold um, that I would do be his, uh, one of his partners in the city council, um, and that, but that also, if I was going to do this, then for me, one of the most important issues was proving that you could do development without displacement. Um, from my perspective, at the core of everything is the color line, and you have to address racism in this country, in this state, in this city, in every, in all of our communities, and everything we do. We have to be aware of the impact 
um, of racism on, on all aspects of our lives, no matter who we are, and, and take on responsibility to address it. Um, but within that context, there's many, many different things we have to do. Um, public safety is really, uh, to have true public safety, you have to have access to health care. You have to have an education that informs uh, you who you are and our children who they are and where they came from. In order to be able to uh, truly be able to participate and be engaged, you have to address issues of, of police misconduct or and or uh, the understanding of the needs that people have based on their condition in life. If you don't have a lot of resources, uh, you are treated differently by the criminal justice system than you do. If you're the wrong, you know, depending on the color of your skin or the, your your uh, background in so many different ways, it's impacted by the way in which people respond to you. And if they're responding from the perspective of a status quo that is inherently racist or that is inherently um, disrespectful or disregarding of people who are of lower incomes or are black or brown or whatever, then you have a situation where you're going to have to challenge the status quo. And that was really what I had to learn how to do it. How to do that not any longer as an activist, which is demanding that the people in power act, but to do, and, and when they don't act, to be engaged in survival programs that show them how they should be acting, um, which the Black Panther Party was very effective. That's why we have breakfast in the schools and uh, while we have sickle cell anemia testing and so many other things. But um, it's also about what now do you do in this context? Here you are. You have an ounce of power. What are you going to do to be able to have that serve people and to be able to have an impact and change in their lives? Um, I realized quickly that to learn how to do that in the city council, I had to follow the money. I had to understand the budget. But I also had to remember who I was. I had to be really, as Nancy Jefferson used to say, great leader from the west side of Chicago, that I really had to know my plumb line and had to be aware of it and, and let it let it direct me. Um, and, and so I think that there's a real distinction between governing and being an activist, but you need them both. And the most important lesson I learned was that in order to make change, people have to create a fee for those in power to swim in, that there will be those in power who want to do what you're doing but need allies in order to get it done because no one person can pass a you know, an ordinance or anything like that. You need to be able to have the majority of whatever the legislative body is. To get the vast majority to be willing to make the changes on the status quo that we really need that really address the day-to-day survival that people have and improve our ability to be able to ensure that our communities are safe that they're healthy, that, the, that our youth can grow and develop, and that all of us can realize our fullest potential, we need to be able to uh, have allies. And we need our allies to support what we want to do, to be out there building their seat for us to swim in. So not only do we have the support, but that we have the additional push and emphasis on those colleagues that are maybe on the fence and need a little pushover, or really want to support it but need to know that there are people that are going to have their back. So I think that the most important lesson for all of us, both in government and out of it, is that we need to see the swimming. And for elected officials, they shouldn't be defensive about it. They should embrace it. And for, for those who are out there organizing, they need to understand the nuances so that when they actually have an ally, that even if it may appear that they're kind of on different paths, that they really are doing what's necessary to give that person what they need to be able to do what the activists want them to do. Mm. You know, that, that's a really key thing for people to understand. 
how politics works and the fact that you really do you really do have to have alliances. And I think that's one of the challenges uh, going from activism to politics. And, uh, of course, if you just tune in, we're talking to Helen Schiller, who is author of Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. We're here at the African Festival of the Arts at 51st in Cottage Grove. You need to come on down and buy this book. And if you're serious about organizing, you need to buy this book. If you're serious about politics, you need to buy this book. One thing I wanted to know, when you look for allies who might really be willing to stick their neck out and make a change, what are some of the things you look for to see who is really sincere in politics? Well, you know, ultimately it's by what people do. (laughs) Our actions are really very critical. I think that part of uh, all of us have a job also of, you know, winning people over, changing their minds, giving them a reason to do the right thing, uh, but also creating a circumstance where they have no choice. Um, I I don't really – there there were so many – Different things that um, that occurred during the time that I was alderman, and different ways in which I had to figure out how to how to move the needle forward. Uh, so I don't think there's just one answer to that question. I do think the core of it is this notion of building a seat of women, but it's also true that it's really important that we're serious about what we're doing. We take it seriously. We're serious about power. I think the best definition of power that I've ever learned and the one that I really have used always in the back of my mind or as a guide was Huey Newton's definition, which is uh, power is the ability to define phenomena and make it act in a desired manner. And I think that it was that as a sort of a core. Um, I think that it, within that lies the answer to your question because every circumstance is really different. You've mm. got to figure it out to see what it is and, and then try and using critical thinking and input from everyone you can imagine, including the ounce of truth that comes from even your worst critics, because there's always an ounce of truth, right? Um, that we, we go about finding solutions and identifying possible solutions, carrying them out wholeheartedly. If they don't work, then we know we did everything we could, and that was the wrong direction, and now we know we have to do something else. But we need to learn from our mistakes, not be afraid to do that, have the courage to go beyond what exists currently, to demand more, and then to act accordingly, not to walk away, but to see what it is that our further responsibility is, is to move move the needle along, to change minds, win over hearts, make this a better world. All right. I like that, I like that answer. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we observe when people get into politics and maybe they don't have a law background, they might not always know the steps of taking an idea and turning it into legislation. How did you learn that process, and <laughs> what are some of the, the pieces of legislation that you worked on trying to get passed while an alderman? All right, so when I first, so when I first became an alderman, the Roberts Rules of Order that I knew was Bob Lucas's Roberts Rules of Order. <laughs> and Bob Lucas, for those of you that don't know, was the executive director of the Kenwood Open Community Organization back in the day, and it was a very different community there, just like Uptown is now in the 70s. And Bob had been around for a long time. He'd been very involved in the struggle around the Willis wagons as the Board of Education when they didn't have students in school, in real school buildings, but in what they called these Willis wagons. At any rate, uh, Bob used to make up his own rules, call it Robert's Rules of Order, and that's how we ran literally all the meetings, coalition meetings we had around the city for years. That's what I knew. 
uh, I knew that wasn't exactly the rules in the city, and so did Harold. And Harold had convinced me to run, and I told him, look, you know, whatever. This is what I know. It's not, you know, your normal thing. And um, and, and plus, you know, I'm going to figure out what to do, but I am an activist. So he would clue me in. I would stand up, and he would basically say, oh, Alderman Chiller, recognize me. Would you like to suspend the rules? He would give me a cue. And I would say yes or no, and he usually knew what I wanted, and so was almost always yes. Um, so I learned that. Uh, so that's how I learned initially. Um, and there's a story in there of when I kind of went beyond that, uh, which was a funny little story, uh, just because he had asked me to do something. I did it. The people went into governmental affairs, stopped me, went to him. He agreed with them, and it didn't go forward. And I'm like, well, why are you asking me to do something if you're not going to do it? So later on, I acted on my own in a council meeting with a resolution that I knew he would like because I knew that it was about someone I knew he respected. Um, and the story's in there. But the point is that um, it was my first. So I, he taught me, and then I acted independently. But I think that um, it, it's further an answer to your question. Um, when I learned, So in my first term, I, uh, been, I had had let me go back a minute. In the 70s, I've had an opportunity to work with Edison Jagogo, who was in Chicago as a representative of the Zimbabwe African National Union, who were in Mozambique, who had troops in Mozambique um, fighting the war in Zimbabwe and Rhodesia for Zimbabwe independence. And, um, and he actually ended up in the late, in 1979, being part of the Lancaster Agreement negotiations that uh, out of which became the independence of the new country of Zimbabwe, an independent country. Um, however, in, the, in 1976, he had approached me. He'd seen the magazine we put out, Keep Strong, and he asked me to work with him. He would do all the writing, get me the pictures, and I would do the layout and the printing of Zimbabwe News, which was the magazine that went to the troops in Mozambique. Mm -hmm. uh, so that in the shortly after I became alderman, maybe a year or so later, uh, I had an opportunity finally to actually go to Zimbabwe, and um, it was a it was a conference, a journalist conference, mm. um, and so I grabbed it and I ran. Even though I was an alderman, I had been a journalist. I still had my press pass. Oh, okay. Um, and so I went and um, spent time in uh, Zimbabwe. So uh, in 1989, this was 1989. When I was uh, um, before we left, um, I had a brief conversation with Presley Nesbitt who had been very strong, who had very strong ties with the government of Mozambique. So he arranged, I was with Lynn Coleman, and he arranged for the two of us to not only go to uh, Zimbabwe, Harare, but also to go to um, Mozambique. Mm -hmm. So we spent time in Mozambique at a time when the South African government was financing Renamo, and they were completely, and they were basically terrorists who were coming in. They were going into to, uh, uh, to small communities, uh, where people mostly lived in thatch homes. They would take oh. everyone out. They would take everyone out of the home. They would kill the, the, the adult men. Oh, no. They would take the, all the women and children, have them go back into the thatched hut, and then they would take the boys, the teenage boys, and, yo and younger, maybe, you know, like 10 and above, and they'd have them, they'd force them to set fire um, under gun, under gunpoint uh, to, those, to those huts. And then they would tell them, you've now killed your family. You have to come with us. And they'd oh. make them more, uh, child soldiers. And then they planted mines all over the place. So when we were there, 
we were not only um, became aware of that situation, we also became aware that we went to the displacement camp where there were tens of thousands of people who were displaced living in, you know, this huge area that had makeshift tents in it and um, barely any facilities. Uh, but we also went to the hospital where again and again and again we spoke with people who had lost one limb or another or children wow. that had escaped or people who had been either blown up from a mind or had been macheted and lost a limb. Oh, wow. uh, so I came back to Chicago pretty upset about the influence of South African apartheid on the entire South African region. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was traditional back in the day, my first few terms as alderman, to be offered an opportunity to teach the eighth graders the Constitution. And I had done that the first year I was there um, using basically the Constitution as a vehicle to show how change is made. So mm -hmm. I used it to show how through community action things were changed, but that mm -hmm. the Constitution started as the only people who were actually citizens were white men who had money, I mean, who had property. They wow. had to, you know, that's all, that's all who was considered a citizen in our very first Constitution. So I start down go on. I decided that in 1990, in January, after I returned from this trip, that, the, that Nelson Mandela was announced that he was being released, but nothing was being done about apartheid. And there was a, the, the folks that were involved in the anti-apartheid movement here had a slideshow. It was, I guess, a PowerPoint of the early version of it um, about apartheid. So, and about the Constitution, the existing Constitution of South Africa, and their demand for a one-person, one-vote, which was just the campaign that was just beginning with Mandela's release as a response to you can't stop the sanctions because just because he's been released, apartheid has to be done before you ah. stop the sanctions. So I came back and I used that PowerPoint um, in the school, which got an extraordinarily negative reaction. Really? After I exposed the fact that the, in the middle school, eighth grade history class, the teacher was very, uh, was very uh, supportive of everything I did. And I asked him for a copy of the book that they were teaching, and I read through the whole thing. He didn't; he wasn't able to choose it. In those days, all mm. of the books were chosen by the principal. Mm. Um, he there was only in the entire book of modern history, there was only one time that the word slavery was used, and wow. it was in one phrase of the African slave trade. Wow! Uh, so I kind of freaked out. I brought it to what was then an advisory local school council. They all freaked out, and the and the librarian of the school went off after me. How dare you talk about, what do you know? How dare you talk about what we're teaching? Wow. So that was going on there. And then I introduced, in, this is now getting to the answer to the question. We introduced <laughs> to the city council. I did. I, I, I asked Presti to give me a group of people to put me in touch with a, 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 a group of people who were anti-apartheid activists that I could work with to make sure I got a right and an ordinance right. Because we wanted to make sure that Chicago led the way in strengthening our sanctions. We had some that Danny Davis had already had passed, but it was a few years earlier and the circumstances were now changed. We wanted to make sure and be in a position where by acting, other or other in other cities would also act um, to strengthen our sanctions at the very time that the South African government was asking the president, with Reagan, to mm. get rid of the sanctions uh, nationally. So um, I so he put together a group for me. They were both here and in New York. There were people in New York who were the finance specialists because, honestly, I followed the budget because I knew you had to do that, but it wasn't like I'm an expert in finances. And international finances were a little beyond my knowledge base. So 
uh, we had, I had that support. I wrote an ordinance. It went through 17 iterations. Wow. Before it, I mean, I was taking advantage of the fact that Nelson Mandela was coming to the States. He lives in I Detroit and Chicago, but we used all yeah. of that to create real momentum because people were excited. And, um, and uh, so it got to the point where Burke and Hules, who were the, all the men that were kind of the floor leader and the finance director for Daly, uh, to, uh, to actually feel the heat and come to me with another ordinance. Now, this ordinance, they were going to substitute it, had fantastic definitions. They were great. But when it got into the actual meat of the ordinance, there was no teeth anywhere. So uh. there was a paper tiger. So I took the ordinance, and I told them that, and I, and I rewrote I, But first I rewrote it. And so I took all their definitions, rewrote it to have teeth and all of that, mm. ran it by my, my little group. They made changes to make sure it had a material impact. They passed it around to others. We had a commitment at that point from the point of Port of Oakland that if we passed this, they would do something very similar. Mm. I also had had an opportunity. We wanted, the, there were three banks in Chicago at the time who still had investments in South Africa. We wanted them to divest. So that was the objective of this ordinance. There was another state thing that was going on to get pensions to divest. Uh, but in this instance, I wanted to force those three uh, banks to, to, to withdraw their investments there. We had used, mm. you know, relationships and other things to get two of the banks, um, the Continental Bank, two, two of them don't exist anymore, the Continental Bank and the bank, um, First National Bank of Chicago, I think it was. Oh. Uh, we got them to commit to what we were proposing, which was that if within, uh, this was like in June or July, that by November, they would have they would have um, divested all their interests in South Africa, mm. and if they didn't do it, they were, the kick the, the the kicker here was that if they didn't do it, then they would no longer be able to participate as a municipal depository, which banks make money off of. Ooh. The third bank was Citibank. They refused, but then they were then in the situation um, in terms of the uh, ah. in terms of the municipal, the municipal depository. And, um, and 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 I read about them because Burke tried to play cute with me, tried to confuse me in the very end. Uh, but we passed it. It was also, uh, but we passed it. Um, it was like the 18th or 19th iteration. And we also, when he started playing with me, he said, "Oh, you have to make this change at the last minute in front of the finance committee." Um, and he thought that there was going to be people on my left, which they were acting on my left in this instance saying, no, no, we can't make change. She'll know what she's doing, keep it the way it was. And I'm saying, I can deal with this change, because actually it was pretty good. Mm. And, um, but not what he was, he was proposing something that I didn't know what it meant. Wow. He was putting in a clause that had to do with finances. So I put a halt. I got on the phone to the person in New York. I asked them what was, what effect this would have. She said, absolutely none. He's just playing with you. I went back in, mm. and I said, we're going to go with it. He turned red. The other folks voted against me, which I loved because it made, as a whole city council, when it came in front of the city council, made it look like it was a real compromise here. Mm. Um, and we successfully passed it. It was fantastic. Wow. wow. Uh, then, a few months later, I, I was engaged in a, in a requested, um, I was engaged in a campaign to increase the spending on AIDS, triple the spending on AIDS. Yeah. And that, in further answer to your question, I realized right away, this is a budget amendment. I'm not going to write this. I'm not going to do the same thing I did with the apartheid stuff. They're going to rewrite it anyway. 
I'm going to do is I'm going to do a resolution saying we should triple the setting on eight. And um, with all the information about why and the conditions that existed that were really put together by uh, activists and, uh, and through Windy City Times. And um, I introduced that. Um, several months later, after Ashok and Danny Sotomayor were in the mayor's face every single day, furling uh, a banner and insisting that there be a, a real attention paid to the AIDS crisis, um, I got a phone call one morning from Pat Hewell, who is the mayor's floor leader, saying, can Alderman Burke and I uh, sign on to your ordinance? And I said, sure. And so then wow. you write it. And he said, what? I said, well, you know where you want to take the money from. I can tell you all the places where I think you can. The activists have already put that together. But you're going to decide anyway. So you write the ordinance and in my name, and then you can sign on to it. And they did. And they did. Wow. That, that is fantastic. Well, we've got a caller on our live line. Let's see if we can uh, amplify their voice here. And if you just tuned in. Uh, you're listening to and watching the Female Solution Global Radio TV show. I'm Naima Latif, along with our dear sister, Helen Schiller, who is author of this book, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. If you were in Chicago around that time, you know this. It was a battle. And our Friday host from Florida says, greetings, beautiful queens. Yes, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Bianca, and uh, we're going to open the mic for area code 312-632. Uh, Give us your name, where you're calling from, and your question for author. Admiral Nelson Bay. I'm uh, very happy to hear Helen Schiller for the first time. I'm very impressed by everything Helen Schiller said just now. I'm on my way to come and get one of those books. I'll be there in less than an hour. I'm probably uh, the next mayor of Chicago. I recently wrote a letter to Brandon Johnson telling him that he uh, would do well to appoint me Chicago Deputy Mayor for Finance and Revenue Generation, or um, I'll very likely uh, run against him and win at the next election. So... uh, when you get here, you're going to meet a real-life activist who can give you some pointers. If you're going to get into politics and share your your knowledge, wisdom, and experience, because she's the real deal. So thank you so much for calling in, and we'll see you here at the African Festival of the Arts to get your signed copy of Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community, right here at the Festival of the Arts, and, of course, uh, we're at 51st and Cottage Grove, so come on down. We want you to be a part of this. We've got some people in the audience. Is there anybody who'd like to ask a question? Let me see. Got the court here. Uh, ask a question. Uh, of, uh, all right. Well, let me see if I can bring you the mic. Oh, you got my own. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. No, no, no.
but I find out when the foundation in politics, community, or individuality is anchored in love. It it covers a multitude. It makes you just being out. I was just walking by. I saw the interview. I, I like to tell you, I, I'm very impressed with a, a honest integrity, a, a person of integrity. The thing, your heart is in the right place. Man, I just I was just intrigued just by your interview by itself. And I, I just tell all everybody in our community, it's something you can do wherever you are. Touch. I, I retired from the board of education 21 years. My wife taught in Woods Academy in Inglewood for 21 years. Okay. And when you have a mission inside of yourself, it will touch your own community. It will touch politics. It will touch the nation. But if you're not true to yourself, if you're not true to loving yourself, you will find yourself just going through the motions of life. And because love will anchor everything. And if you don't love yourself, I'm going to tell you for true, you can't love anybody. So thank you for letting me have these few words. I really enjoyed the interview. And from the Gabonese people of Gabon, Africa, <laughs> Akile Power. All right. <laughs> That's the drive. <laughs> I think one of the things that we learned from this is that sincerity is important if you're going to if you're going to be in politics and, and I think one of the things that we find challenging is that so many people get into politics for for the money uh, and that's why some of them get in trouble because they end up doing wrong things with the money during the time that you were observing. Uh, what was happening in city council. We know that <laughs> Alderman Burke had been over the finance for a long, long, long time. Uh, what were some things that surprised you when it came to how the city was deciding how to divide up the money that was being gathered, you know, through our taxes and everything else? Were there anything that, that you were kind of shocked at, oh, we're doing that? I mean, what, what were some of the things you saw? Well, I guess I actually entered the arena of city council. Um, I mean, I became, I became alderman at the beginning of Mount Washington's second term. I was very focused, as I said earlier, on um, proving that you could do development without displacement. And, um, and I had a lot of conversations with Harold about this because he was from the first congressional district, the South Side, which at that point in time was a model of divestment, a negative model of divestment. I mean, there was nothing happening here. Um, and there was no development going on that housing, you know, that, that following the 50s and 60s when a lot of the communities were disrupted in order to build actually public housing that was done very poorly and in a manner that was very disrespectful for people and made it difficult for people really to grow and develop and deal with stuff. And it was also with planned failure so that the management was not very good and that the campuses, both on the south side as well as the Cabrini, were campuses that were large and that included sewers and roads and uh, police uh, uh, policing, none of which were paid for by the city, all of which were no longer part of the city. It was like there were townships within the city 
that the Chicago Housing Authority was responsible for, but not paying attention because the head of the Chicago Housing Authority was taking money to do his own development like Marina Tallis. So, and that was why one of the things about Marion Stamps was that she was so clear and focused and aware and knowledgeable about all of that, that she, and she was a, 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 an organizer, a fighter and organizer who had a huge love for her people and, um, and was engaged always in Cambrini, but also citywide in terms of all Chicago tenants in really challenging the way things work. So we had a period of time in, in starting in 83 where there was real hope and expectation of changes that were to come. Harold was really clear of that. He was committed to it. He also understood that just changing a law wasn't going to change anything, that you had to change the culture, you had to change the behavior, you had to get people know that things could be changed and engage them in making that change from their own perspective of what needed to be done. And he said over and over again, and I think this is really important because I think it's often misinterpreted, he said over and over again, it would take at least 20 years to get to that internalization. But that's what he was talking about. He wasn't saying we have to wait 20 years for a change. He said we have to engage in a change again and again and again. If we used to say quantitative change leads to qualitative change, this was his version of it. You know, things have to be made to be right in order to really get the change that you want. It's why it's taken this long to get an alderman and a, an alderman, a city council that is forward-looking and a mayor that is forward-looking. And, and I know that there's a lot of pushback, but I think that's because we're used to the status quo and that's always our default. And we have to get beyond that. We have to look at what it takes to find new solutions to the problems that we have because what we've been doing over and over and over again, even if it's different things, isn't working. So it's time to do something different and take that leap and not be fearful. The truth of the matter is it can't be worse than it is. Mm. So we have to really get at the heart of it and not let the people who want to prove to us that, that we can't make the change by holding us back that we can and that we have the strength to do it and the courage to do it as a community and as a city. So I think that it was uh, when I became alderman, I wasn't in a I had to learn the job, first of all, and I knew that to understand what I knew that to do that, I had to, one, be able to have a uh, an exemplary service office because I had to show what that job could be and I had to be responsive to everyone, but I had to hold on to my values. And sometimes that seemed contradictory. The people who were opposed to me who wanted just, they saw the entire community on the north side, unlike the first congressional district where there was, um, there was divestment. In Uptown, there had been, we were at the end of that cycle in the, specula in the speculatory cycle, and they were beginning, people had been land banking, and now they were beginning to try and do new development to kick out the people that had been now living there and living through all the difficulties and trying to find solutions for several decades. And we were saying, no, we're going to do development differently here and show it could be done. Um, and so Harold and I had a lot of conversations about it. He said, why are you against any development? And I'm like, I'm not. I just want to make sure that we do it in a way that doesn't force other people out, that it benefits everyone, not just the people who are trying to make the money off of it, or people that genuinely want to live in a different community, uh, but not necessarily in the one it's going to become, but the one it could become if mm. we really do it. So that was my that was our conversation. He said, okay, great, I will help you do that. Um, but I need to wait until the new year to do it uh, because then 
um, we will have everything in place to be able to help you. So we were more detailed too, but that was basically it. Meanwhile, there was a major development we were putting in place that would allow us to, because the very first thing I said I wanted to do was to create, before I left city council, I wanted to be able to define the, the, a development that was going to serve the people, that when it was done, it would serve the people who were already living there, that it wasn't going to be the source for forcing them out of the community. And it took me until 24 years to accomplish that, but I did. Uh, but that's what I told him. So immediately, one of the developers who is, is, was trying really high, built, bought up a huge amount of land in uptown. His, he was holding a lot of, he bought up the large apartment buildings, the ones with large uh, units. And he, some of them were, had been vacant already for three years. Mm. He raised, he rehabbed them, tripled the rent, and then let them be in deep pockets, obviously. Let them be vacant all that time because it was part of his plan to redefine the entire neighborhood. I defeated his alderman, and um, and he heard what I was saying, and he hired a publicist to just go after me. Oh, my God. They went after me to the point where even some of my strongest allies were like, we can't deal with all this negative publicity around housing. Uh, I went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, and, um, and we were proceeding on this housing piece. And then Harold died, and they killed it. And I tell that story in the book. But the point about it is that that was very distracting. So while I was doing that, my staff was working really hard on the service piece. And what I learned quickly, it took actually two years, but what I ultimately learned was that when Daly became mayor in 89, Harold died, Daly became mayor in 89 after a special election. And... Um, and immediately I was person that brought up. Well, I kind of worked before then, but I was especially person that brought up. And the word went out to all the commissioners, don't give Schiller anything. And this went on for many years. But I figured out that if you treated people with respect, and it wasn't hard. Because, you know, one of the things we always said, I know this isn't particularly known about the Black Panther Party, but we always talk about winning over the hearts and minds of people and loving the people, respecting the people, and then defining solutions to problems from the true perspective and needs that people had. So it was, so for me, I treated, so to me, I knew one, there was a policymaker, and more often than not, the person that you were interacting with who was telling you no was not a policymaker. They were following mm -hmm. someone else's direction. So I said, okay. I went, I started at the bottom of every level in government uh, when I needed something done, I'd go to the person that was the first person on the, on the rings up. I would ask them, uh, tell them what I needed. They would tell me that was impossible. I would ask them who told them that. They would tell me. I would say thank you. I'd go to that person. And I'd work my way up until I got to somebody who would actually make the change. And I would tell them up front, I will never say your name. Mm. I will never thank you. I will never say your name unless you actually don't do this. And then I'm going to talk about how this is something <laughs> oh, that should be not. done, and you're the person not letting me do it. Uh, oh. So the, in tandem with that was the budget hearings, which I went to religiously to every single budget hearing and had questions that ultimately I started sending out to every single commissioner well in advance of the hearings and demanding that they give me answers. Um, it wasn't until 2000 that I actually started getting them, and it was one of the reasons I actually voted for, ultimately voted for a budget. 
because I had the answers that I wanted, and um, even if I couldn't make all the changes I wanted. But that was huge because coming up to an election, I mean to a, a hearing, I was able to give that department head my entire list of outstanding needs, and they would be curious to get them done because the last thing they wanted was me to criticize them on the floor of the city council when all the press was there and the mayor was listening on the fifth floor. So that ultimately I was able to get a lot more done than most of the alternate, including the mayor's allies, because I wasn't afraid to challenge people. And I wasn't raised, I wasn't afraid to force the issues. Uh, but I also got a lot more information because a lot of all women spent all their time at budget hearing thanking the different people from that department for the work they're already paid to do. They don't need that thank you. Um, they can, you can give it to them in other ways. But you don't, that's your time to ask questions. If you don't have any questions, you don't know what you want to know, that's what you do. I never did that. They didn't want me to do that. They were pleased and happy that I didn't do that. They were listening to make sure I didn't. What I did was just ask the questions and try to get the answers that I wanted that then could be shared with everybody. And everybody, because the media covered it, and people could come to those things that are public. So that, to me, was the way in which to be able to function within government in spite of the political uh, uh, political barriers that were being put in my way. For me, from my point of view, you could try and stop me any which way you wanted to, but there was a way to get beyond it. I might not know it yet, but I was going to find it out and we were going to move forward. But in every case, I couldn't have done any of that without supportive people, without having, and without an overall um, engagement on both a community level, political level, and a legal level. It was really always important to use every tool in the toolbox. Mm. All right. Got a question over here. And uh, so with all community 
or as, as many communities and the circumstances that have occurred, all of which have brought us to this moment. I think personally that we have an opportunity here uh, with the city council as it is now and with the mayor that we have to, um, to actually really change the way city government functions in very key areas. The focus on education, the focus accountability, the focus on, um, on health and trauma versus treatment versus trauma, the acknowledgement of the impact, the traumatic impact, so many of the things that happen on our city have on our uh, on ourselves and our people and our communities, and how inappropriate and how we have to change the inappropriate responses that we've had to that that don't help, that are negative in terms of people's growth and development, and in terms of safety, in terms of true public safety. So true public safety, make sure we have the health that we need, make sure our housing doesn't make us sick, but that our housing provides us a future both economically but also because it gives us stability so that we can build the other things that we need. We can have a stability to be able to go to a job, stability to be able to raise our children, stability to be able to participate in our children's education, make uh, stability in, uh, in, in a healthy environment so that our children and ourselves can live sustainable and long lives. So I think that all of those things, have we've done the same thing over and over again. We've had several mayors and all of them have said, we need to make these changes, but not very successfully. I think we have that opportunity now. But you know, a common denominator is that the one thing that is a common denominator is that the city of Chicago is still segregated. Yes. And so how do we get that stigma where there's equity for, you know, what happens in the north side versus what happens on the south side or the west side. How do we do that? How do we, you know, what, what, what plan can we put in place where the, segregated, where the segregation could be eradicated, if, you know, so that everyone is getting the same services, everyone is getting the same education, everyone is getting the same, you know, environmental concerns discussed. How do we, how do we achieve that in your opinion? So, in my opinion, I think we have to be careful about this, uh, how we view the segregation in terms of our policy. So, and the reason I say that is I'm on the north side. We spend a huge amount of time, I spent a huge amount of time trying to maintain and improve housing that was affordable to people who are living there. Some of that was new, some of that was sustainable, some of that was just improving what existed. All of it was resisting a market environment that made that difficult. And, um, and one of the results of that was, and, and in a context where there has been a policy, it was a metropolitan-wide policy, it became a very much a part of housing policy on the state, federal, and city levels in the last 10 years, which was that the solution to segregation was to move people out of the black community into white community with the assumption, inherent assumption, that that was the only way that they could flourish. I think it was inherently racist. And one of the results of that was that in our situation on the northeast side of the city is that you have people living in affordable housing with young people who are literally isolated from the rest of the community in terms of their educational opportunities, but also in terms of the how, the, just the way the housing conditions exist and other things going on. So we work hard up there to create community for, uh, for that community of people. 
So it's a segregation within a so-called integrated area. So I think the real issue is how do we create the true respect that everyone needs and especially that we need to do for those communities that have not been able to take advantage over the years because of Jim Crow type laws, both in the South and the North, that allow us to be able to, have, to, to, to develop wealth in our families, that allow us to be able to uh, have the stability in our communities so that we're not moving around all the time or other people don't make decisions for us. Well, we don't have the same property rights that somebody else does um, in order to be able to have, a, have our own definition, whether it's to be where we are in a community of people we're familiar with and want to stay with because we are able to build the educational institutions that really serve us, the health institutions that serve us, et cetera, or maybe we want to be part of another community to have that choice. And to do so, whenever there's been a lawsuit or anything like the Gautreaux case in 68, it's had the opposite effect in terms of the way the policy was interpreted by the status quo. So when they did Gautreaux, and Dorothy Gautreaux was successful in her lawsuit saying she should be able to live anywhere, supposedly, the settlement was that they no longer were going to put the resources into public housing except in the scattered sites, had to be in non-black communities, and consequently, so aldermen in those communities, all of it who controlled zoning, all of a sudden made it impossible. So that until I became alderman, there was not any alderman who said build in my community. And that was the 80s. Uh, so we have a situation where we have to be careful about what we wish for in the sense that let's make sure the policies that's being responded to our demand is actually a true solution to that policy. So in order to do that, it needs to be done from the perspective of those who are most affected by the problem. And then what is it that they really need? It's usually multifaceted. It's never just the one thing. And the policymakers who are often, especially in this state, guided by a very strong market mentality when it comes to housing, which then affects everything else, will say, no, 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 you have to do this, or we'll focus on just one piece of it, like the first piece I said, and then we don't really get a solution because no solution to be that single-minded. It has to actually address what the real problem is. Mm. Well, we know that there's a whole lot of controversy about the immigrants, the, the offer of housing to those who recently immigrated uh -huh. and not with the approval of the mayor, but, you know, our new mayor, Brandon Johnson, just kind of had that dumped on his lap and, you know, I was at the city council meeting where there was just mm -hmm. such intense opposition. And, you know, there, there were uh, positions on both sides. But I've also been to the uh, police stations where I've seen mothers with children sleeping on the floor. So I, I see the human side of it beyond the politics. How would you see the possibility of resolving that kind of a conflict? Well, it, it, it's a representation of the, of the um, uh, complexity of the issues that we face because we're affected by everything that's happening in the world. We like to think it's just about our own community or our own city, but everything really does affect us, and this is a really good example of it. It's a, you know, I think that for us in Chicago, um, it, it's helpful to remember our own history. And Harold Washington, when Harold Washington became mayor, the vitriol that was both apparent in the election and then through the time that he was mayor up until the time he died 
was, um, but also the progress he made in the sense that he was finally able to get control of the city council and be able to start to make some of the actually governmental changes uh, that he was committed to. Uh, those things um, were really, uh, they preceded, they were, I think, um, an typical of what was to come given the new access to information by the internet, the access to people to speak out and face up whether they knew it true or not through the internet, the ability to have a new amplification of hate speech, but also the other side, to be able to allow people to communicate and do all the stuff, but not having an ability, you know, just having all that rush on at once, we're learning, right? Um, and um, I think was, so it wasn't surprising to me, um, and I'm sure to others, that Barack Obama faced the same thing when he became president. There were two different people with two different sets of politics, but there was a lot of commonality in terms of the reaction and the response, but also maybe not in how they addressed a bunch of things, but certainly in terms of how within the context of where they were, more power in D.C., some less power, but still power in Chicago, where you're impacted by the power situation you're in. You want to do something other than the status quo of that power. You can't just do it overnight. So you pick different ways to do it, and they may, whatever. So, but that's very similar in both circumstances. And, um, and I think that that's just carried on to the point where we have now this incredible politics is just about being polarized. It's not about solving problems anymore. It's not about service. It's not about how do we make this a better place for everyone? What is the greater good? The greater good is lost um, in the polarization. And um, at least among people together. And, it's much, and so I think it's really important we go back to winning over hearts and minds and really talking to people we disagree with um, and doing so in a manner that's respectful enough to get their attention or smart enough to get their attention to be able to start changing minds. But it means we have to also think about what they're saying. It also means we need a community. When you get it, what I learned, because I really thought it was important to put myself in other people's shoes, was that unless I had a partner who was with me, going to, once I put myself in someone else's shoes to understand why they had such a different point of view in order to be able to inform my own actions to try and figure out how to move them in a different direction or engage them in my direction, um, I needed someone to bring me back. So I got into their head, but someone had to bring me, help me get back to my own plumb line in order to get to that point of learning from that experience. We all need that. You can't do that on your own. Sometimes you can do that in church, but I think maybe that church community, but whoever you are and whatever community you have, that's what's so important about it. It allows you to go understand and respect just like you were saying. I see this side of it, and I see that side of it, and they're both sides are legit. How do you make them work? I think if we think about how we always used to talk about we need a piece of the pie and rework that to say we need to broaden the pie because there has to be a solution to all of this. And just because we help that person doesn't mean it's going to hurt us. It's just like when Howard was elected, all these white politicians were saying and were winning people over against him by saying, they're going to come after you because, look, we treated them bad, they're going to treat us bad. And I think that we have to, that's why this whole question of love is so important. We need to have respect. We need to see each other as human beings. We need to understand the challenges we each have of it. We need to demand respect, but we have to give it as well. And, and part of that is earning it. So some of it is not just expecting that, but showing how it, it is and then finding solutions that work for us all. But I, I do believe that if you identify a problem, you know there's a problem. 
you look at it from the perspective of those most impacted. You then look at the options, the various solutions you have, and how that relates to the rings, the growing rings around people like a tree, right? Um, and how that adds, what collateral impacts there may be. And, and taking that into consideration, take your best shot at the best solution. Um, you will, and then carry it out wholeheartedly, you will have your best path to getting at a solution or learning what it might be. Every problem has one, but it takes work to figure out what the real solution is. It's easy, I mean, that's the problem with our politics and the polarization. It's easy to come up with a really simple answer or a, a reactionary answer, reacting to one simple problem without looking at the, at the whole, the big picture and the whole context. Mm. Um, it's why the book was hard to write, but why hopefully it's more readable than, than as stories. But I needed, the world is so different today than it was 30, 40 years ago when I started writing, about when I started writing, not when I started writing, that I had to give context to all of it so people knew why that was an important experience mm. and could see how it's different than today, but then also learn from that in their own experience. I, didn't have to let, I don't have to spell that out. You know what your experience is. Just keep in mind what the history is. So we grow on what everyone has done before us, yeah. um, both the negative and the positive. Uh, we learn from it and um, turn what even was bad into something positive by what we do next. What we do next. Well, now that brings the question, of course, and uh, and if you just tuned in, we are sitting here at the African Festival of the Art, former alderman of the city of Chicago, and her book is entitled Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. And you want to come on down and get a signed copy of the book and uh, it's available at the Underground Books booth here at the African Festival of the Arts. And you've had an extensive career as an activist and then as an alderman and someone who's gotten some policies passed. So now what is next for you? Well, I am um, immediately, well, so I did the book, so I'm doing book tours and conversations. Um, and I love the opportunity to have this narrative. Um, I'm also kind of have gotten into uh, metal art, so I'm doing sculptures with metal, which is like I love, <laughs> um, and and actually got into really, you know, I did a series on this concept of building a fetus women, um, so I'm trying to figure out how to make that relevant, uh, but I also am really interested in being as uh, helpful as possible to, um, uh, in terms of this looking forward and possibilities for the future. I'm working um, I, I'm, you know, anytime anyone asks me, who is especially a current alderman or elected official, for any kind of um, assistance that I can provide, I'd like to do that if possible. Um, I'm still a little bit involved in the West Side Center for Justice that um, I uh, helped develop uh, almost 10 years ago with my son and his law firm um, on the West Side, West Side Center for Justice in Harrison and um, California. Um, helping them with um, uh, various different activities. They have a special project. But it's still there. It's become a hub on activism on the West Side and um, around social justice. And uh, so, and it also has become a hub for information, uh, historic information about the Black Panther Party. So there's lots of exhibits there and a lot of uh, classroom um, teachings that go on there, people coming through, uh, curriculum being developed. Uh, by some teachers, et cetera. So I'm still 
peripherally and sort of a little bit involved with that. Uh, but um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Alderman Angela Clay, the new Alderman of the 45th Ward. I think she is going to be an amazing leader. She already is, but I think she's just going to blossom and bring to the city council a very um, positive, forward-looking perspective, a lot of um, a, a very strong sense of justice, and um, and and, a, and and apparently a really, really good ability to interact and understand and communicate with others in a way that I think will have lasting effects on the city council. So I'm very excited about that, and um, and I am committed to her to help her understand the city budget in the next few months. But after that, who knows? <laughs> well, we're so grateful that you have taken your experience and turned it into a book so that people can learn. And, again, this is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win by Helen Schiller. She's here at the African Festival of the Arts today, and you can get your signed copy, so come on down, 51st and Cottage Grove, and it's really a beautiful day out today, definitely a place where you can find all kinds of, of wonderful African artifacts, and you can meet wonderful people like author Ellen Tiller, and you can gain some knowledge and some insight and maybe even some motivation if you've got aspirations for politics or if you're an activist and you want to know how to create and you want to know how to create some of the coalitions that are necessary when in politics. One last thing before we go. If people are looking to make an impact, and, and uh, Keisha was asking earlier, you know, about the, the real polarization that exists in this city and the distrust, and as you mentioned, people saying things like, well, you know, if they get in office, they're going to do to us what we did to them. How do we overcome that? What would you suggest if, if people really want to bridge the gap between the various very divided communities, what's the first step they can take? Well, first of all, I think that um, we come, that, that our youth are, in, are much more, they're just way ahead of us. We're a few decades older. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, so in the 40s before, just as an example, um, the, the former alderman, the guy, the bridge between me and Angela, um, was, he had a different reputation, but in actual fact, didn't see a vacant lot that he didn't didn't embrace in terms of creating market rate housing with very little concern, if any at all, and really um, in, a, in a minimal, if not undermining, policy towards meeting the required affordable housing um, uh, for any time anything is built. There's some required. Uh, it was minimal at best, the least that could be done. And as a consequence, there was a real fear that um, – that, that we'd be able to have somebody come in there who would be able to turn it around and maintain some kind of stability for people who were living in the community. As it turns out, uh, there's many young people that moved into those buildings. They're much more progressive. There are many different backgrounds. And Angela won this election, I think, probably by more of a margin than I ever did. I mean, my elections are close. She won by 60%. 
um, and that's huge on the north side of Chicago. So uh, we, I think that I'm saying that to say that things aren't exactly the way they were historically. They are changing, and a lot of the hope I have is in our youth. Um, but I think that um, I think that 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 uh, that doesn't change the need for us to be able to uh, to be able to expose people to the realities of different people's lives. So that most people are sensitive to the struggles other people have when they are able to experience it without it being somehow a challenge to the way they live their life. And that's what we have. That's the that's the challenge. Uh, I think that we each have our own responsibility. It's not your responsibility to change someone else's mind who's determined to be opposed to you or who's expressing a racist view. That's my responsibility. Mm. Um, I mean, we all have some with that, but you don't need to. You don't need to be. I mean, someone doesn't need to be further victimized by somebody else's inappropriate behavior, what I consider inappropriate behavior, um, necessarily. Sometimes we have to do that or we have a reaction to it. But I think that each of us needs to identify the best role that we can play that is um, at the service of changing minds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we each have a different role. Yeah. have a different role, so know your role. <laughs> well, we thank you so or much. Or take on many. Or take on many, <laughs> yes. You can do that. Well, we yeah. certainly enjoy talking to you, and I highly recommend this book. I think it's it's a historical document. This was a, a very, for those people who might be too young to remember Harold Washington and that whole era, this is really a history book. This was a time of, of great exploration when it came to changing minds, building coalitions, overcoming some of the grip that the old, old guard had on the power over the city. So you want to come down here and get this Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win by Helen Schiller. Come down to the African Festival of the Arts. And, of course, we're here at the Authors Pavilion, uh, right behind the underground book uh, booth where all these books are available. You want to get your signed copy today. And if you're on our switchboard, uh, we're going to send past our 2 o'clock uh, cutoff point and do some more interviews. But if you want to call in, you need to call in now so the switchboard closed at 2 o'clock, so you need to call in 515-605-9325 and press 1 so we know you have something to say, and uh, we will certainly uh, take your comments. We're going to talk to a few more authors this afternoon, and of course, we urge you to come down to the African Festival of the Arts. This is a place where you can really feel that African marketplace. You can get some great books, so come on down. Let me just add one thing. I, there's one thing in the book that I think is important, which is the history of the police contract Ooh. and the story of how the African American Patrolman League was iced out. Oh. And I think it's a really important piece of our history and informs everything that's happening today with the police department and this new police body, that uh, police accountability body that was. Uh, elected or the first election for, partially elected now will be more elections later, and, and the, the group that gave the new mayor the three um, uh, candidates for superintendent um, is, is, uh, is it's, they have the, it's the first time there's been a change in the structure of accountability for the police that is different than just a, a papering over what came before us. 
but I think that it's very important to understand the limitations that are built into the contract for people to be able to create the thing that we need for this new police accountability body to be able to make the changes both in the contract but also in the structure of how we deal with policing in the city uh, based on what they know about the history. So I just wanted to make that point. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I think that's one of the real deep issues that's happening in the city, though, the relationship with the police, the fear that citizens have that the police has been, uh, the police have been used to kind of perpetuate that undercurrent of racism. There's a, a real distrust. And the police, I'm not talking to some police who, because uh, I'm on the other side of that, many of them say that they get such a different response from different sides of the town, and they feel like they're treated like heroes on the north side and like villains on the south and west side. So we need to mend that and, and fix that relationship. And the minute we have left, what do you think can be done? What perhaps the new police chief can do to change the image of the police on those other sides of town that don't feel like their rights are being respected? Well, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship. So I think that, um, I do think that training is really very important. Um, and I think that policies have to change. And then be, and then the training becomes important about the change in the policy. Um, but I think that, that uh, you're not going to make the change unless people feel that the police who are functioning in their community are actually there to serve and protect, which has not been the case often. And so there may be individuals who feel that way, but as a policy, as an institution, that's not the way people feel. So if you're going to make that change, I think you have to go to the heart of that problem. And it's different in different areas. So it's almost something, on the one hand, that has to be dealt with district by district. But on the other hand, has to be citywide in terms of what the behavior is that's accessible and what the communication is that needs to become standard that you have with people and how you treat them and vice versa, so that you can begin to have a conversation with the community that will change the way, you know, so everybody hears each other and you can begin to make those changes. But if there's always a position of, you know, the last superintendent kept, every time I saw him on the news, what was he saying? He was blaming the, the community. He was blaming the victims because they weren't telling the police what they so-called needed to know in order to the change. But the problem is, no one saw any investigation. Nobody saw any action on their part. It was like, we don't, it's your fault because you're not giving up, you're not doing our work for us. And that's how I felt I was hearing. I think that's how a lot of people felt. We have to change that dynamic. So part of it is leadership. Part of it, a big part of it, but that leadership towards really identifying the policies that we need to redo in order to be able to train a police force and hire a police force that will in actual actuality in every community truly serve and protect. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Helen Schiller, author of Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. I'm Naima Lateef, and we implore you to come on down and get this book at the African Festival of the Arts. We've got to take a break, and we're going to come back in a little while with some more authors and We'll be here live on the Female Solution Global Radio TV show, of course, on Facebook and YouTube. And Ball Talk Radio, call in now, 515-605-93254. Switchboard shuts down, and you can stay on and make your comments. We'll be right back. 
So if you are listening online, uh, we urge you to come on down to the African Festival of the Arts, and we're excited. We're going to definitely bring you more from some of these authors who are available here at the Underground Book. We appreciate you so very much for joining us. Listen in on Sunday and Monday. And we're excited because we know that if you are a book lover, you're going to find exactly what you're looking for right here at the African Festival of the Arts here on 51st and Washington. I'm sorry, Washington Park, 51st and Cottage Grove. Definitely a place to be. And somewhere that we can make it happen where if you are willing to come on down you'll find what you're looking for. The African Festival of the Arts is here all the way and uh, through Monday for this Labor Day weekend and you'll have a chance to shop and find what you are looking for right here at the African Festival of the Arts. We are certainly grateful for those who are joining us and we urge you to continue to listen in. We'll be covering more from the African Festival of the Arts. Now let's greet our global family and tune in tomorrow for Soulful Solutions with Dr. Debbie, I'm sorry, Soul Purpose Healing with Beata and Monday Morning Mindfulness with Zelda Speaks. I'm Naima Latif, and we'll see you next time on the Female Solutions. Come to the end of our show today, but you can hear every show in the archives at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the dash female dash solution. You can also hear today's show on the Female Solution Facebook page. Go to www.facebook.com slash the female solution. Leave your comments about today's show. You can always reach me on my website at www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. Watch our TV shows, 
listen to our radio shows, order our books, and be sure to get your copy of the book, The Female Solution. On behalf of our team of radio hosts, I'd like to thank all of you who participated in today's discussion. And to our global family listening from all around the world, we say thank you. To our family in China, Sheshe, India, Zanyaba, Japan, Arigato, Korea, Kamsanida, Russia, Spasiba, Germany, Danke, Poland, Jankujan, France, Merci, Spain, Gracias, Italy, Gracie, Egypt, Shukran, Ghana, Medasi, Nigeria, Eshe, South Africa, Ngiabonga, Senegal, Jared, Kenya, Asante, Israel, Toda, Pakistan, Shukriya, Afghanistan, Tashakur, Saudi Arabia, Shukran. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Thank you. And may peace be upon you and the mercy of God and God's blessings.